Welcome to the Explore Words, Discover Worlds podcast, presented by Bradford Literature Festival. In this episode, we delve into the complex topics of hashtag MeToo, sexual violence and the liberation and pitfalls of speaking out against abuses of power. Exploring two gripping novels, Complicit by Winnie M. Lee, which takes an unflinching look at the film industry and sexual abuse, and Young Women by Jessica Moore, which asks how complicit we are in a world built for men. Recorded live at the 2022 Bradford Literature Festival, our panellists draw on personal experience to discuss these important topics. Please note that this episode contains content that some may find disturbing. everybody and welcome to the Bradford Literature Festival. Uh, so just a little bit of housekeeping before we start today. So please just remember to turn your mobile phones off or switch them to silent please, that would be greatly appreciated. And uh, if you need the bathroom at any point, it's just in the corner on the left and it's just there as well. If you'd like to tell us what you think, you can tweet us using the hashtag BradfordLitFest. Now, there may be some filming and photography taking place throughout this event, and if you do not want to feature in any photos, just put your hand up now, and we can give you one of these yellow lanyards, um, and that means you won't be photographed. Uh, so without any further ado, actually before we introduce our host, uh, just to let you know, uh, questions, Q&As will take place and I'll sort of wander around with a mic to hand to you as well. So without any further ado, please welcome your host, Claire Shaw. Yeah. I got a cheer, that's nice. It is an amazing honour to be here um, tonight, Willie Lee and um, Jessica uh, Moore. Uh, and we're here to discuss their two new books, uh, which are, again, fresh from the, um, the book oven. Uh, Winnie's uh, new novel, uh, Complicit, was published, was it last Wednesday? Last or last Thursday. Thursday? Last Thursday. Last Thursday. Yeah. It's even newer than I thought. It's a tiny little book baby. Mm. Uh, and Jessica's is only slightly older. There it is, cradled in her arms. On the 26th of May, is that right? Yeah. Barely a month long. It's just beginning to focus. You can just <laughs> distinguish kind of light from dark. It's a lovely age for a book. Um, when when um, Jessica mentioned the 26th of May, I thought, well, that date sounds familiar. Uh, and I thought maybe Winnie's book came out on that date. But it turned out it was actually, I gave birth to a book on the 26th of May, but I blanked it out. <laughs> um, as we do when we give uh, birth. Um, <laughs> both of these incredible authors are here with their second books, um, and both of us have tra both of them have travelled to be with us. We're very lucky to have them. Winnie is uh, a friend of mine, uh, and Jessica now. I hope uh, Winnie's first novel, Dark Chap Chapter, was published in 2017. It won the Guardian, not the Booker Prize. Um, it's been adapted for film. It's published in how many languages, Winnie? Uh, ten. Yeah, ten and counting. Um, and we're here to talk about Complicit, which is an enthralling novel centered around women, Hollywood, and power. I'm reading this from the back of the book. 
who wields it, and how that might affect what and who is believed. Um, and with Jessica, Jessica's first book, Keeper, was published in 2009 uh, and was the top read of the Sunday Times, the Independent, the Cosmopolitan. Oh, we could just keep going on and on and on, but we've got things to talk about. Uh, and Young Women is a razor-sharp read that slices into the heart of our most important relationships, thinks about how we are uh, complicit um, and I'm thinking about power and thinking about abuse. I'm going to talk about all of this stuff. And there's only that we have a relatively small audience, which is a wonderful thing because we're considering now, instead of having a Q&A session right at the very end, I think we have Q's and A's all the way through. What do you reckon? We've got loads to talk about. So I'm going to ask Winnie and Jessica to read some sections of their book to talk about some of the issues that it raises. We're just going to have a great big chat um, and we're going to see if you've got anything that you want to ask or anything that you want to bring to the conversation as we move through. So we, you don't have to save it. You can have it here and now. And we'll stop every now and again and check if there's any questions or anything that you want to contribute. I've, I've read, I've highlighted the fact that I was reading from the backs of the books because uh, they, I, I find them quite funny, the blurbs. Um, but my reactions to the books were, were a different thing. I think they're two completely remarkable uh, books. And I will confess that as a poet, I do tend to read novels more often than I write poetry. Poet friends in the audience don't tell. Um, what really spoke to me was, was how both books, in their very different ways, um, destroy the notion that there is a perfect witness, destroy the notion that there's uh, a chronology and a logic and a coherence to the ways that we tell or even experience stories. And because of that, both books, although they are you know, compelling and engaging and utterly gripping, uh, they also reach inside you. They ask quite a lot from you uh, as a reader. Uh, they kind of um, reach into your mind and ask you to look at yourself. They ask you to look at your, 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 your place, your privilege, your own response to abuses of power. So they're, 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 they're unsettling and they have a loud echo that stays with you a long time uh, after you've read the book. Um, when I say that, you're probably thinking, well, Claire, Winnie's book was only published last Thursday, but I have had it for several months longer. So, yeah, uh, without me rabbiting on any longer, I'm going to invite both of you, and we haven't settled on an order, so you'll have to start with the first arm wrestle, or maybe a little thumb war. Um, I'm going to invite Winnie, I think, uh, to kick off, the re um, kick off the evening with a short section from Complicit that maybe gives us a little flavour of the book. Okay, how, um, I kind of have like a, what, three minutes? Yeah, three, three four minutes. minutes. Three, four minutes, Something okay. that just gives us a bit of a flavor and then, and then I'm gonna ask you to talk around. Okay, um, so I'm not gonna read from my prologue because I think Jessica's reading from my prologue and there's actually quite a similarity between our two prologues. So I'm gonna read from my chapter one. Um, and um, just to give you a little bit of context, um, the protagonist, the main character of, of Complicit is a woman named Sarah Lai, who, when the book opens, is 39 years old, and she's teaching screenwriting to kind of, I guess, a no-name college in Brooklyn. Um, 
this, the entire book takes place in America. Um, but she um, previously had had a career in the film industry 10 years earlier. And kind of what really kicks off the action in the book is that she gets an email from a celebrated journalist from the New York Times who has a few questions about a male producer that she used to work with 10 years ago. Um, so when the section I'm going to read from is basically her in teaching screenwriting to her, to her students, right? Um, and her students, bear in mind, are, are about 10 or about like 15 years younger than her. Um, so she's talking to her students and she says, how about, and she's asking them to come up with examples of strong female characters in movies. Um, and she says, well, how about Scarlett O'Hara in Gone with the Wind? The students look at me blankly. After all, tomorrow is another day, I offer quoting Scarlett O'Hara's iconic phrase of survivalism. Still nothing. Still nothing. Sweeping Civil War epics in the American South? I nearly shout at them. Have none of you seen Gone with the Wind? Um, I think I saw the poster once, Danny offers. I might have to add a screening of that to the syllabus, I say, trying to hide my disbelief. It was a game-changing film in Hollywood back in the day. Not so great on representing race, but then again, it came out in 1939. Oh my god, that is like so old. Avery, blue-haired and lip-glossed, gasps. It's the same age as The Wizard of Oz, I say, to mitigate her shock. They came out in the same year. I never saw The Wizard of Oz, Avery admits. This makes me want to cry, literally, that there are kids in America taking film classes who haven't even seen The Wizard of Oz. Still, I struggle on. So film characters are memorable, should be memorable, if you can get a sense of their interior life. If you can imagine their hopes and their fears, what their past was like, their insecurities and weaknesses. The kids are nodding, but I have no idea if any of this is actually percolating into their brains. Yes, a lot of this emerges through the performances of the actors, but the actors are working off what's written in the script. So it all comes back to the importance of the script, of crafting memorable, believable, three-dimensional characters. I finish my perambulation around their desks. As I reach the front of the classroom, I look at them as a group. So your challenge as a screenwriter is to write a character who isn't just a cliché because she's pretty or because he fights well, but a character who could have started out as someone you knew in real life, someone believable. They're still paying attention to me, so I continue on. Movies are about the suspension of disbelief. People can fly, cities can get blown up, sure, but in order for the movies to work, you have to believe in the characters first. My students gaze back at me, an inscrutable herd. Danny raises his hand. Sarah, he asks. Yeah, what is it? Uh, speaking of believability, what do you think about all these accusations going around? I look at him, and I feel my pulse increase, even though I doubt my students suspect anything. I stay silent, giving him space to continue. You know, all the stuff about Bill Cosby and, and that Weinstein guy, all these women accusing them of assaulting them over the years. Don't you believe, do you believe all those stories? I mean, it's crazy, isn't it? I am careful about how I craft my words, careful to maintain a teacherly tone. What do you think is crazy about it? I mean, why is this all coming out now when they were quiet about it before? It's kind of suspicious, isn't it? And I am stuck wishing for one moment to launch into a real lesson for the students, how the industry really works, all the improbabilities and the hierarchies and the crushing desperation of wanting that career. But there are limits to what I can teach as their lecturer. I don't think... Just because they've waited so long to tell these stories, I don't think that necessarily means these things didn't happen. Maybe we listen to them first before forming an opinion. Danny has an odd, unsatisfied look on his face, but before I can say anything, Claudia pipes up, her hand raised hesitantly. Um, Sarah, I saw on the IMDb that you and Holly Randolph worked on a film together. Is that true? What? One of the kids chokes. No way! 
And if they weren't already paying attention, now every single student is staring at me, waiting for my answer. Ah, uh, yes, the Internet Movie Database, online archive of every film ever made and every person involved in every film ever made. I could have, if I really wanted, tried to remove my name from the IMDb, but some remaining shred of pride has stopped me. The IMDb listing is my lasting proof that I had once been a person of note, a mover and shaker, or so I thought, someone who once had done more impressive things than teaching screenwriting 101 to a bunch of kids at a no-name college. Nothing really dies in this day and age. I can't lie about it, of course. It's spelled out right there on the IMDb, which any student could bring up this minute on their phones. Yes, I say after a pause, I worked on one of her early films. I do not mention that that was the film which sent her career stratospheric, or that I was associate producer on it. Avery gasps again. Oh my god, what was she like? I absolutely love her. Holly Randolph was great to work with, I nod. I'm really happy for her success. I'm aware of how superficial my answer sounds, rattled off as if I were a brainwashed soldier from the Manchurian Candidate. But a shadow of nausea tugs at me. I know that if you were to examine the same IMDb listing, you would find another name located not far from Holly's and mine, a name credited as executive producer of that film, a name which I'd rather forget. It's interesting to me. Um, when I listen to poetry, I often react in a really physical way, and I had exactly the same physical reaction to that. Uh, what a great line to, to end that first section on. I think, did you use the phrase crushing desperation? Yeah, yeah. I did use that phrase. And that crushing <laughs> desperation is, is a kind of presence uh, throughout the book, really, isn't it? Um, and and, and a, an incredibly important presence throughout the book. It has a huge sort of explanatory uh, power, the, uh, the desperation to make it, the desperation not to end up being a, a lecturer on a crappy film studies course. Uh, and what I wanted to ask you, Winnie, is can film studies courses really be that bad? Does this happen? Have they not watched Wizard of Oz? Um, I mean, I, I don't know, obviously, I made it up, but like, I, I'm sure there are people these days, like kids these days, who haven't seen The Wizard of Oz, right? I mean, so film, and that, I guess what I was, that's what I was trying to capture in, in that section, that, you know, films that we think are iconic, yeah. kids these days have never heard of, right, you know? Um, so I grew up in The Wizard of Oz, was something that everybody watched in the States because it was shown every Thanksgiving. Um, so it was this classic part of our childhoods. And, Media is different now. Like kids, you know, there's 500 TV channels and Netflix, and you know, people don't watch the one thing or the two things that are being broadcast. So it's such a fragmented media landscape that there's no longer that one unifying thing. I mean, sure, there's like, you know, Stranger Things or Game of Thrones. You do have like occasional shows that unite a lot of people, but it's quite different. So um, I think that was what I was trying to get at there. That you know, even over the course of a few decades, our take on entertainment's really changed. And I do want to hear a little bit more about the, the crushing despair and mm -hmm. the role that it plays in the story. But before I do that, I want, um, I want, without any element of shaming, to know who has watched Gone with the Wind in this audience. I haven't. I haven't. Is, is there anybody who hasn't seen Wizard of Oz in this audience? Oh, oh there we go. Uh -huh. Yeah, there are people who haven't seen The Wizard of Oz. It's not just young people. <laughs> Oh, sorry. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you're thinking next Christmas will be the Christmas when I watch Wizard of Oz. <laughs> or maybe you're just scared of the little monkeys. But um, back to Crushing Despair and its role 
in the novel. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah, I think I wanted to capture just how ambitious and driven people are if they want to work in the film industry. And, and we've all seen movies about somebody that like shows up in LA and wants to make it, right? Um, and that and Hollywood's very good at nurturing its own dream about the fact that if you're young and talented, you can get your big break and you can make it. And it's, to be honest, very few people do make it, right? And I, I know I say that as somebody who used to work in the film industry, um, thankfully not as an act, as an aspiring actor, but um, as somebody who, you know, essentially had been working to be a producer. Um, and there is just such a sense that it's so hard to get your foot in the door to begin with that once you do, you have to completely, you know, put your entire being into everything, right? And out in LA, I never worked in LA, I worked in London as a producer. There's, you know, everybody is like constantly on the make, constantly hustling to try to see if they can get a part, or if they can get a promotion, if they can get like contact to get a film made, or if they're an actor, just if they can go to parties and meet people who are cast, you know, there's just so much of a feel of a constant hustle and that crushing desperation of, if I need to succeed, there's thousands of other people out there like me, so I need to be putting my all into it and also maybe be a little bit ruthless about it as well. So um, I think that's what I was trying to capture, that, um, yeah, there is a crushing desperation because there's a sense of there's so much competition and it's so hard to make it. But at the same time, people often want to make movies because they're passionate about cinema and they're passionate about telling stories. And there's that artistic passion, and that's quite separate from the professional ruthlessness that happens in the industry. I loved, um, there's a point in the book, no, no huge spoiler, only a tiny one, where uh, Sarah, the main character, takes a notice off a notice board so other people can't see it, and it playing this kind of pivotal role about Sarah kind of being sucked into a world where you, you may be uh, slightly dishonest and trying to justify that to herself. And I love those kind of, there's lots of those moments, micro moments, uh, in the book, where where Smallax stands in for uh, something much bigger, I also love that idea as well that the crushing despair to be uh, successful and make it in this industry is where vulnerability uh, lies, and back to mm. that notion of of the victim. But but before we move on and and hear from Jessica's book, just talk a little bit more about your experiences with the film industry, would you? Yeah. It's not everybody that can okay. casually drop that into a conversation. I mean, I probably couldn't have written the book if I hadn't. I mean, I could have. It just would have been very good, I suppose. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I worked in the film industry from 2002 until 2008 um, in a way that was quite similar to what Sarah goes through up to a certain point. So I um, started off as an unpaid intern for a producer who needed an assistant down in London, and I worked for months without earning money, but I mean, I, she paid for my travel card in London, you know, so my expenses were covered. Um, and I was happy to do that because that was my foot in the door. Um, so I, you know, and it was really exciting and I, I wanted to make movies. So I, so I did that for six years and you start off doing stupid things like making coffee and then like being handed a whole bunch of different scripts and you have to punch holes in them and bind them and stuff and completely like, you know, brainless sort of tasks that you have to do, but somebody in the office has to do it. And so you kind of start that like that. And I would say work your way up, except we were such a small company, there was no, there's nowhere <laughs> to go, really. You just end up doing more and more work, right? Mm -hmm. um, so as you get busier and actually make films, you have more work on, but you didn't really ever have kind of the resources to hire other people. So, it won, but you're still learning, right? So, so I guess that was it. Like I was happy to do all this work and be effectively underpaid because I kept on learning and I was making movies and we were making movies towards the end. So, you know, we made a short film which got nominated for an Oscar. So I went to the Oscars and that was quite exciting. Um, 
We worked with people like Daniel Craig, um, and I ran casting for a while for our projects, and Tom Hiddleston auditioned, and we didn't give him the part right. So there was all these, I guess in retrospect, it seems quite cool. Um, but why does it seem cool? Because I ran into celebrities. And then the thing is, like, celebrities, you know, people like Daniel Craig, he was a struggling actor once as well. So I kind of wanted to look at that very fine line between somebody who's a struggling actor or a struggling aspiring director who suddenly hits a big and suddenly and then becomes like a huge star. Um, because what is the difference between them really and another person who may be just as talented but never got their big break and never had that, mm -hmm. that change in fortune? Um, so yeah, that is stuff I wanted to look at. Um, but yeah, I worked in film and I loved it on one hand and on the other hand it was totally crazy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and I realized like this is a quite precarious world that you're working in because you're not being paid well. And um, I was lucky I had a female boss that I you know, got on with quite well, but I could have had a male boss. I could have ended up in a whole diff bunch of different situations that, um, where I wasn't really looked after and which could have been quite dangerous. So I wanted to look at that really in the book. Okay, I think that's something that we'll come back to and think about how far you speak from yourself um, within the novel. But I want to move on and hear a bit from you, Jessica, if you would read the yeah, short so section. I am, how am I doing with the sound? I'm going to read my prologue and then a little bit of the beginning. I watched her film last night, Moitié Victime, it was called. She was 16 in that movie. You could tell by the way that the director shot the sex scene that he knew that too. Maybe not emotionally, but contractually. I hunched my body around the laptop, my nose inches from the screen, to see her better, to reach through and grab her. Her face was perfect for period pieces. She made sense with her hair, chestnut brown here, back in a chignon, Cupid's bow mouth accentuated in creamy red lipstick. Perfect for an ingenue in Vichy, France. A double agent. That was her role in this film, and that was always her gift, her magic. The way she worked in every context, not just plausible, but perfectly suited. Inevitable. She looked so young in that film, deer-limbed and emerald-eyed, afraid in that way that men find sexy. So different to how she was when I knew her. I watched the film once as a forensic exercise, ignoring the parts of it that weren't her, or at least an echo of her. After I saw her in the footage of the protest, I watched her film a second time. This time I put on my dressing gown, poured a glass of red wine, let myself stretch out over the sofa. I watched for the colour palette and the shot composition and the languid, reproachful pan of the camera over the cafes of a small town square where the Nazi officers sat. I treated it as an aesthetic experience. It worked well that way. Chapter One The first time I saw Tamsin, her eyes were closed. Her lashes didn't flicker, even as the sirens wailed closer even when they were so close that we could feel their screams through our bodies, even as our skulls jolted with the knock on the tarmac of police boots. The whole time her face was serene, as if she were dead and laid to rest. I turned my head to look at her, feeling the road's grit scrape against my scalp. Her hair was gold, what they call old gold, the colour of gilded furniture, 
with just the slightest tinge of olive, skin strobed by the lights of Piccadilly Circus. In all the shouts and slams and the crashes and the cries, she just stayed lying there, unmoving. She seemed in that moment otherworldly. As the police drew level with us, we were engulfed by noise. It was then that her eyes popped open. They were green and feline, yellow flecked. I must have looked afraid. She looked at me, grabbed my hand. Then she was yanked upright and her fingers were torn from mine. She went limp, resisting arrest as a corpse resists its own concealment. Cop's breath on my neck, arms pulled painfully behind me. They half dragged, half carried us away. I couldn't stop my feet from skittering along in obedience. Tamsin was smiling slightly, as if she thought the whole thing was just a little bit funny. Cool. <laughs> so many things to talk about. Some of it is just what it's like to hear it read out. It's a different thing, isn't it, to reading it off the page. Um, and it does. It's very interesting to me how, how hearing literature aloud uh, affects us physically. If anybody else wants to reflect on that or make noises in the way that I find myself doing, do feel free. That was amazing. Um, it's really interesting to me to, to remember what... Uh, your imagery is fantastic. And to remember, um, to remember that, that, that the book in, in many ways kind of opens with that, that protest. That's where they encounter each other. Because we travel such a long way from the protest uh, through the novel. And, and I hadn't planned to do this, but would you tell me why you chose to locate their meeting in a protest so, of all places? Yeah, sure. So... Um I wrote this um, kind of, it was, it was the summer that we had lockdown and we had lost so much, you know, the first lockdown and we'd lost so much of our contact and, you know, we lost social contact and we'd lost family contact, but we'd also lost a kind of collective contact. Um, the idea of collective action had been really present the year before. We had all those XR protests and then suddenly that went too. Um, and I think the idea of that as a priority felt sort of lost in the miasma of COVID. And um, why, you know, why start it in a protest? Partly because it was an image that preoccupied me, but also because um, it's a novel about you know, a cause. Um, and I was kind of interested in whether my characters were like allowed to pick their own cause or if mm. the cause is chosen for them, if we're sort of determined by our experiences in terms of what we're allowed to care about. Um, I have this sort of constant ongoing feeling um, that I think a lot of people who kind of have grown up um, with the constant like refrain that the world is going to burn pretty soon. I, I've always felt that um, if we don't solve climate change, then we're rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. <laughs> you know, we can we can um, address other social problems, but uh, if we're all if we're all going anyway, then um, you know, what are our, what should our priorities be when there's this like background emergency? Start on a bleak note. Yeah. <laughs> what should they be? Tell me. Um, but, but you've asked that incredibly interesting question about are, are we allowed to, to pick our causes or, or are our characters allowed to pick our causes? What's your cause then? Your cause is 
I would, I am pretty cool with saying that I'm a feminist novelist. Some people do not feel comfortable saying that. They feel that uh, sort of espousing any ism um, is uh, undermining the idea of like art for art's sake. Or, I mean, I think there are very valid reasons for making that argument. And I don't know that I will always identify that way. Um, but I am interested in um, making the narratives of women and the things that happen to women bringing an emotional truth to that. Um, I think very often we know the mechanics of what happens and maybe the kind of rough sketch or an outline of, say, violence against women, which is kind of what I've written about. Um, but we maybe don't understand the kind of emotional contours that lie behind that. And until we understand why people do what they do, then there's no hope of changing it. And I, I, I you know, if I were to say, like, what is my kind of cause in a nutshell it's trying to understand where the line is between victim and perpetrators how do we move from victimhood to complicity to creating harm ourselves and um that can only be that's a trajectory so it's got to be told through a story right i don't see any other way to understand it so novels are great no other way to understand it um that that's where you have to arm wrestle with with the poetry <laughs> um because to me, the task of poetry, a, a bit like a photographer or a po portrait painter, is, is just to freeze frame the story mm. and then to really focus in mm. at a microscopic level. But I am fascinated to see how, how both of you do that uh, and how so much kind of symbolism and, and imagery is, is brought into play. I mean, perhaps um, I should refrain. There's maybe there's no other way for me to understand it. Yes. <laughs> Can I ask you then, Winnie? Mm. Your cause? Yeah, I mean, violence against women, right? Um, broad, which sits within the broader context of feminism um, and gender inequality. But, you know, I, I guess if you're moving towards that question you, you asked earlier, can you pick your causes or are they kind of forced upon you? I mean, I, I, I suppose for me, you know, violence against women was not something I thought much about until I became a survivor, victim survivor of rape myself in 2008. Um, so, in that sense, in a very stark way, it was sort of forced upon me. And I suppose you can live through experiences like that and that, and that form of trauma and choose not to be an activist about it afterwards. Um, but, you know, everybody is, brings to trauma their own existing personality, I suppose. Um, so for me, I, I you know, my, my rape took place in 2008 at the hands of a complete stranger who followed me in the park. Um, who was a 15-year-old boy, so, so that was kind of the impetus behind my first novel, um, Dark Chapter, but I had always been a feminist because I was raised like that as a mother. I mean, my mother had raised me to be a feminist, um, but, and I, obviously you grow up and you hear about rape, right? You're very conscious about sexual violence existing out there in the world, and then for me, I never really thought that there was something that could happen to me, and then it did, and then I was like, oh, right, okay, so this is very different from what I was expecting, and yes, it does entirely change your life, right? Um, so I think, yeah, I ended up becoming an activist because of my own lived experience of it. Um, I don't think there's an expectation that every victim should have to do that. Um, but for me, as somebody who'd always been a writer and who'd always used writing to try to make sense of the world, yeah, of course I was gonna try to write about that material. Um, so that was Dark Chapter, and then 
I wasn't planning on writing about that topic again because I was, you know, it can get tiring. The emotional labor of talking about violence against women is, is quite heavy, as you yourself, Claire, would know, and as somebody who works around this issue. Um, and then the Weinstein allegations happened in 2017, a few months after my first book came out. Um, so at that point, then my agent had said, my agent at the time had said, you know, you are quite well placed to write about everything that's happening with the Weinstein allegations because you used to work in film and you're a survivor of sexual violence. And I was like, okay, I suppose I am, right? You know, and, and then I was like, okay, but I'm only gonna write this because I am tired of writing about sexual violence because it is draining. I'm only gonna write this if I can write it in a way which is interesting for me. So for me, it was about delving back into the movie world, right? Because my, my film producing career ended in 2008 with my assault not because my assailant was somebody within the industry, but because that is what trauma does to you, right? And so the PTSD and the anxiety, the depression was too much for me to continue trying to be a producer. So my whole film producing career just ended just like that, right? So for me, there was a huge sense of loss about no longer having that career. And eventually, you know, I programmed for film festivals and started writing my first novel. Um, but I felt quite sad about no longer working in the film world, because even though it was crazy and underpaid and ridiculous, um, I, I still love the movies, and I still love the movies. So I guess I was like, okay, can I write a novel that allows me to revisit those sorts of emotions and that sense of loss, and also use that as a conduit for talking about this issue? But Dark Chapter was very clearly about the trauma of sexual violence itself, and Complicit is more about a system and a culture that enables that kind of violence and that kind of abuse to exist um, because it's built into the inequalities in, in the industry. I think this would be a great point to hear a little bit more from the books. But before we do that, I promised you the opportunity to ask questions as we went along. And I want to offer you the opportunity and keep my promise. Has, has anybody got anything that you want to put to Winnie or Jessica at this point? Hungry for more. Um, I'm mildly disturbed by the, um, the sentence you said about victim to complicity to perpetrator mm. in terms of the, the implications of that cycle of abuse mm. that victims go on to be abusers, which doesn't work as soon as you introduce sex into it because the, the vast majority of abusers are men and the vast majority mm. of victims are women. So how does that work? Because there should be loads of women going around abusing and actually that's a very small minority. So... But I'm also very pleased you identify as a lesbian. Yes. I mean, sorry, as a feminist. I'm... Did she just out you? I'm a lesbian <laughs> feminist. You're, you're a feminist. <laughs> Whatever else you want to say is up to you, not me. <laughs> Please don't be filming that. <laughs> that was brilliant. Also a vegetarian, maybe. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it is disturbing. Um, when I was working, so I worked in the domestic violence sector for a bit, and um, one of the reasons that domestic violence is bad, there are many reasons, in, like the intrinsic facts of what happens are obviously bad enough, but um, one of the subsidiary issues is that children are exposed to, um, and um, the girls who uh, grow up in homes where that happens are more likely to become victims, and men who boys who, who grow up in those homes are more likely to become perpetrators. But that's, that's, so that's one piece, is that 
that like being exposed to that is of course a kind of abuse and but then what do you choose to do with with mm. your experiences where does free will come into it um and that's a question that can only be grappled with at great extent there's no sort of pat answer to that but i'm broadly more interested in um the way that whenever you set up some kind of repressive system, whether it's one-on-one or on a state level, you always find collaborators mm. within, you know, I, I think a lot about, um, you know, Nazi concentration camps, they would have um, the capos, the people who were prisoners who were given special uh, privileges in order to um, oppress their fellow prisoners. Um, we, we, the, the British did it in India with the Raj. It's incredibly effective. Um, it's a feature of so many different forms of oppression. And um, it, I don't think there's anything inevitable about a kind of cycle of victimhood, but I, I think there, there's, a, there's a line that I kept coming back to when I was writing this book, um, which was Sartre, but quoted by Simone de Beauvoir, half victim, half accomplice, like everyone else. Um, and yes, yeah, good, isn't it? <sighs> yeah. Um, and I was, uh, my first book was very much about a kind of straight victimhood. Um, and as you do as a writer, you kind of want to move forward. And um, pe- you know, people are always victim blaming, blaming, saying, you know, it's your own fault, and obviously that's wrong. Um, but where does complicity come in? You know, in, in mm-hmm. Winnie's book. Complicit, well, it's, it's there in the title, but it's, it, I think it's certainly for me the, almost the most disturbing thing that came out of the Weinstein mm. stories was this raft of unnamed, not particularly powerful, but though some were powerful women who were the honeypots or they organized meetings, they knew what was going to happen mm. or the female lawyers that Weinstein hired yeah. to um, discredit his victims. You know, we, find, we see collaborators and double agents, and I, I, I want to know what's with that. I'm interested in them. It's so easy, isn't it, when <clears throat> evil has a predictable face and is personified in a kind of coherent um, way. But, but when you were talking about the kind of dance between complicity and victimhood, and um, I heard a lot that, well, I'm going to ask you to, to read a, another section from the book, but the, the dance around telling and not mm. telling seemed to me to be where much of that um, blurred area between um, collaboration and... Um, resistance might lie uh, in the act of telling or not telling and how we tell and why we tell and why we don't tell um, and, and that these are also really complicated uh, processes. Could you read a section from the book that might speak to that? Um, I possibly could. <laughs> um, I'll have to find it first. So do you want to... I mean, could I, while while Jessica's looking for, I mean, go ahead and look for it. I mean, I I found what was quite interesting about Jessica's book is that um, aside from that cycle of victimhood to perpetrator that you'd mentioned, there's also this other aspect of trying to 
sort of do what you think is the right thing in terms of social activism or you know social justice activism and also damaging people along the way. Um, so without giving away too many spoilers, obviously there's there's the main character in the book is a does is a feminist does want and does want to be doing the right thing. Um, has her own experiences that kind of. Um, which we don't really learn about towards the end, but she's got her own reasons for being a feminist. Um, but then oftentimes the people around her are experiencing things and she's not quite responding in the right way. She's sort of using their stories for her own sense of heroism. And so I think it, there's that as well. I, I suppose as a victim, that is, that is, those are some of the aspects that can be quite damaging about victimhood. For example, like you tell, you tell your friend about what happened and, and they say some kind of, diminishing comment, right? Or, or they claim to suddenly understand, but they don't really understand. So it's that kind of gray area of wanting to be an advocate, but not really knowing how, what's the best way to be an advocate, and in, in a sense, mm -hmm. also damaging people in the process that I find quite interesting. And I think also the fairly shameless way that mm. our media just guts people in general, but I think particularly women, yeah. for their stories as yeah. content. I mean, yeah. what we, we see, I think we experience it as writers a lot. One of the first questions that you'll get asked kind of by a publisher or by a reporter is, well, did this happen to you? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, if you say yes, then the response is different. Yeah. Um, and then it becomes a kind of product and a, a you know, Commodity that comes alongside the importance of speaking out. Yeah. And how do you how do you handle that? Yeah. Your experience becomes a commodity. Yeah. It can be. Yeah. The the USP the unique selling point that becomes a publicity yeah. hook that gets your publisher excited, right? Because that's a way that you sell the book, right? So, and I I suppose I'm complicit in that, and I just answered your question earlier, Claire, and I was very upfront about what happened. Um, but that part of that is knowing that people are going to be asking that and. Yeah. yeah, at the end of the day, you know, I feel like my books are authentic because I've lived that, but that doesn't mean that you have to have lived through those experiences to mm -hmm. be able to write a good book about it, I think. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, in, in poetry, <laughs> poetry being so much less marketed and marketable, mm. um, you'd often meet with the same kind of assumption, you know, if you write about this experience, you must have had it, surely, or you wouldn't write about it. And, and part of me feels sometimes really frustrated by that assumption. And what, why, why? This is art. Mm. I have no obligation to tell the truth. And I don't have to tell the truth in a direct way. I can create something that looks different narratively to, 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 to the truth as I, as I lived it. But often it is, to be honest, <laughs> rooted in experience. Can we just hang on while you get the mic, and then we can all hear you. Thank you. So would, 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 they, would publishers be asking the same question to people who write books about, you know, serial killers? Mm. <laughs> no, yeah. but if you as an author said, my cousin was killed by a serial killer, and that is part of the impetus as, why, as to why I wrote the book. Yeah, that's a huge publicity mm -hmm. hook for a publisher. I mean, it sounds really cynical, but yeah. The, and I suppose that maybe goes to the nature of what we as readers or human beings think about, you know, the artist and, and the work. Or like, you know, we always want to try to tie something between some kind of link between the, what, what an artist is creating. Artists, right? I suppose we are artists, but what somebody's creating and what they've lived through. Um, but the fact is, you know, there's no obligation. We shouldn't have to feel obligated to 
kind of like pull back the curtain and show what it is that we've lived through, but there is that sort of expectation. And we have another question here, thank you. Um, so I've watched, I think, every single documentary on Netflix and all the other platforms about Feinstein, and, and there's a horrible fascination mm. about it, and I wondered why, mm. because it is unpleasant, mm. so I wondered, apart from a bit of voyeurism, I suppose, um, you know, what it what it was that was making me watch mm. these programs. And I realized that part of it was around that in some senses there was a happy ending in the sense mm -hmm. that the documentaries were being made mm -hmm. because those horrible men had had their comeuppance mm -hmm. and they were going to go to prison. And I was kind of watching it because I wanted to make sure that justice was done. So for you as novelists, um, uh, have have you have you uh, kind of followed that story arc in terms of happy ending? Do you feel like you you needed to do that, or have you done something more complex? I'm not asking for any spoilers, um, <laughs> but you know, did you feel that you needed to to do the kind of justice is going to be done thing, or did you feel like you could leave it more complicated? It's a good question. I'm trying to figure out how do I answer that without giving spoilers. Um, but I think what you said <laughs> speaks to what our narrative expectations are, right? Because we all watch Netflix documentaries, or we watch courtroom dramas and stuff, right? So we always, there's an expectation that like justice needs to happen, right? And generally in a certain kind of film, justice does happen, right? So you're right in that the part of the fascination with the, with the wine scene accusations and, and ultimately conviction was this sense of like, this man's gonna get his comeuppance. As an activist, um, I'm aware of the fact that, you know, one team was one man and sure he had lots of victims, but there are many, many other perpetrators out there who haven't been caught. I think of all these men that have been accused um, in during that time, Weinstein's the only one that served prison time, really, I think. Um, so there's all these, you know, I mean, Cosby was in and now he's out, right, you know? So um, so there are a lot of other perpetrators out there, and, like, Weinstein has become sort of this, not figurehead's not the right term, but the sort of symbol of that era, but he's the only one that's ever kind of really suffered legally, I suppose. So anyway, um, going to your question, um, I wrote an ending which I thought was realistic, So, but it does have a glimmer of hope because, you know, Sarah's journey is... She is quite bitter at the start of the novel because of, you know, 10 years, you know, it's 10 years on from whatever happened and she no longer has her career. She feels very kind of left, a, you know, cut adrift from the industry. Um, so she's quite bitter. And then when Tom Gallagher, the journalist, reaches out to her, this is her chance to tell her story, right? Not necessarily to the public, but at least to another person. So for me, her journey was about how does the telling of that story allow her to at least have a personal reckoning with what had happened in the past? Um, and so at the end, uh, I can't tell you whether or not justice delivered because that would be a spoiler, but there does need to be some kind of resolution for Sarah emotionally in terms of what does the telling of that story do for her. Um, so yeah, there is a glimmer of hope there. And I was trying to ask the question about, you know, ultimately I want the reader to keep reading to see if justice happens or not, but I can't tell you because that's the end of the book. <laughs> um, but yeah, just going yeah, curious. Yeah, I mean, I think we probably were thinking along such mm. similar lines in that I wanted to write a realistic ending. I wanted to write a, a, an honest ending. Um, so it couldn't be tidy. Um, but I mm -hmm. think that there's a kind of moral duty for optimism. Yeah. Because if, yeah. if you... Mm -hmm. is it, like, if you think yeah. everything's fucked, can I swear? 
Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, go you ahead. just did. Well, <laughs> if you think everything's screwed, then there's then there's no point in yeah. doing anything. You can just you sit back and watch the world burn, and that can be very tempting. But it's I think it's um, you know, there's a there's a it's reprehensible. You've got to, you've got to think that people can be better. Otherwise, there's no point in trying to hold anyone to any kind of standard. Um, with with Weinstein, um, I didn't. I didn't follow the story when it was unfolding um, because I was feeling very jaded and depressed um, about violence against women. And I, like I said, I've been working in the domestic violence sector and I felt, you know, occasionally there are high profile cases with a very famous, maybe very beautiful, um, you know, white woman uh, where it might go okay. But that is not the point. Like, we cannot say that we have that the Me Too moment has passed until mm. we have addressed, um, you know, the cleaner who doesn't speak English, whose immigration status is threatened, is she safe from assault in her, her, job, her job? And until she is, you know, if, if Hollywood is safer, then that's obviously a good thing. But we cannot be kind of like looking towards, I don't know, the kind of Olympus of our society to yeah. figure out what the kind of moral landscape is. We've got to be looking at what's happening with the most vulnerable and until mm. that's addressed or resolved then the work hasn't even really started oh i want to clap feel <laughs> unprofessional flail <laughs> just holding it all in inside i'm applauding randomly um to many points that you just made there and and i thought you know when we're talking about vulnerability, and we've already identified how things like dis the crushing, um, the desperation, desperation the, 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 the ambition, uh, but also the fact that um, we're talking about gender, we're talking about ethnicity, we're talking about class, we're talking about so many elements of our kind of complex uh, identities, uh, as well as our psychologies. Um, and, and I also thought about Selena Godin singing Pessimism is for Lightweights <laughs> and wanted to cheer at our moral obligation to be optimistic. But it strikes me, uh, when he talked about you know, being an activist, and that might be something that we, we kind of come to, talking about, um, about forms of activism, but it seems to me that what you're describing is, is writing uh, as a kind of activism or the act of telling um, as, as, as activism, and I do want to come back to the, the section that you were instructed to, to <laughs> okay. look out for that explores that kind of dance around telling or not telling. Yeah, so um, I'm going to take a poll. Who thinks I should attempt a Canadian accent and who doesn't? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, go on. Okay. Oh, absolutely. All right, I'm married to a Canadian, so I feel like I've got some leg to stand on. So all, <laughs> all complaints, direct, please direct to him. So, um, I don't know that I need to uh, introduce the section much other than to say that we have two characters, Emily and Tamsin, and um, it's been increasingly obvious for some time that Tamsin has some kind of secret, um, and a, a prominent man has come into the media for all the wrong reasons, and um, there's been a hint that maybe Tamsin has some involvement with that, so I'll, I'll read you this section. When she returned from the shower, her hair and rat's tails around her thin face, still with the same slow, dragging step, it seemed too obvious to point out that something was weighing her down. She was wearing jogging bottoms and a baggy sweatshirt, even though it was such a warm day. They engulfed her. She looked the way she had when we had been swimming, and something seemed to be pulling her under. 
tea or wine? She shrugged. What's going on? You're not yourself. When we're least like ourselves, we reveal the most, she said flatly. What? Is that a quote from something? Don't worry. I guess it's just the mean reds. Is something worrying you? Something. What? She stayed silent. Tamsin. I could feel the need to know growing, physical and shameful in its insistence, as if it might cause my hands to reach out and yank the words from Tamsin's unwilling tongue. Something's happened. Nothing's happened. I gestured to the baseball bat by the door. This isn't normal. No. Her eyes drifted from mine. Tell me. She gave an ironic little smile. I'm amazed you haven't figured it out. You read The New Yorker, right? Her eyes gleamed for a second. There was Tamsin, the Tamsin I recognized. Bold, smacking down the gauntlet, stepping back to admire her handiwork. I felt a leap of excitement in my chest and forced myself to be still. Sometimes. So what's to tell? She was swaying slightly, as if she felt gravity more strongly than usual. I swallowed. Your story. The room seemed to grow, my little words echoing within it. She shook her head. Stories have a beginning, a middle, an end. This is just a thing that happened. Okay, maybe story's the wrong word. It's your, your lived experience. It's not my lived experience. She dropped onto the sofa and gathered her knees up. It's just my life. It's so fucking mundane. I'm not here to be entertained. Aren't you? Tamsin. A pause. Then I said, there's a value to talking about stuff. You believe that? I realized I didn't know if I did, really. It was an article of faith. I do, I said, making my voice firm. Tamsin was looking at me closely. You don't talk, talk about your stuff? I drew in a breath and shook my head quickly. You mean, Harry, oh, Tamsin, that's just some silly... It's nothing like this. This is really important. I guess if victims don't speak up, you're kind of out of a job, she said. <laughs> I felt I might, have offend, I might have been offended if I felt, hadn't felt her edging closer, hadn't known she needed only one last push. She was vibrating with a magnetism that repelled and attracted me in equal measure. Tell me. I realized she needed me to say it out aloud. Tell me about Art Rawlings. Triumph darted briefly across her face, then faded away to be replaced by a haggard look. Then she unfolded her long legs onto the couch, crossed at the ankle. All right, pour the wine. No, don't. I'm, I'm sorry for the North Americans in the room. <laughs> it's fine. I thought it was a passable. It was a North American accent. Um. <laughs> She's the problem with 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 book readings from novels. You just left hanging. We need the rest of it. We don't really need to go home, do we? We could just stay here and, and listen. God, one of the most kind of compelling things in the book is this incredible intimacy between mm. these two women and, um, you know, the, which develops extraordinarily quickly. And I think you, you used the word uh, magnetism uh, in that, that section, but also what leaps out and, and in a way that an annoyed me to the most shocking degree, 
given that I have, you know, and an also an absolute faith in the value of speaking out, is um, what, what's our what's our main character's name? You Emily. Thank you, Emily. I've already explained to Jessica in advance I have a real problem with names. <laughs> it is a thing. Um, Emily's kind of uh, Emily's almost blind adherence to, 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 to the value of speaking mm. out and the way that she feels so kind of naively committed to, 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 to the value um, of speaking out. And I wonder, um, you know, because I'm aware, although it's frustrating that we don't have all night, I wonder if I might ask Winnie to read something from your book that maybe takes that a little bit further if we're thinking about the, the cost as well as the value of speaking out the potential um okay uh i think that could possibly link to the thing i was gonna read yeah okay so um the section i'm gonna read does link to um uh what jessica had read actually there's an actress named jessica <laughs> in my book um so essentially uh this is part about like a third of the way through the book and so tom gallagher has had um one interview already with Sarah, um, and she has told him how she started working in film, um, and she was working for a female boss named Sylvia, and they were kind of really working to try to get um, the, the funding uh, in place for their second film, which was gonna be directed by Xander. Um, and then this man shows up named Hugo North, who's incredibly wealthy, he's a billionaire, and he says, oh no, I'll fund your film, um, and, and I'll invest in your company, um, but I wanna be more involved in the filmmaking process as well. So they said yes, because obviously every person out there wants money to get their film made, um, and that's kinda how the door opened to this man named Hugo North um, becoming involved in the filmmaking process, and more specifically in casting. Um, the lead role of a young woman. Um, so he had, uh, okay, so basically um, uh, Sarah has, has said that she had seen him having drinks with one of the actresses that was, that was auditioning for the role and she thought that was a bit weird because that was not the actress they were planning to offer the part to. Um, so Tom is interviewing uh, Sarah and he says, um, can you recall any other specific encounters between Hugo and female actors hoping to be cast? I strained my memory as if forcing it through a sieve. That was the first time I'd noticed. Undoubtedly, I mean, there would have been others. Well, what do you mean by that? Put yourself in their position. You're a young, aspiring actress. You audition for a role you desperately want, a plum role that could launch your career. Then you get a phone call from the production asking you to meet the producer. This could be where they tell you you've got the part or where you convince them of your talent and your passion. Any communication from a producer is a source of hope of what might happen. Did Hugo ever ask you to get in contact with these actors? I hesitate. I have been losing sleep these past few weeks trying to separate what I did from what I suspected, even that early on. These are fine gradations, painful reassessments for me. Most probably he did ask me to set up meetings with those actresses and I complied, just like Ziggy would have done. He was my boss after all. It wasn't my role to question him, was it? I just thought, okay, this is how Hugo operates. He has money, he likes to meet attractive young women who want to work in the industry. He's certainly not the first powerful, wealthy man to act like that. What do you mean by that statement? I stare at Tom Gallagher and wonder how much easier this interview would be if he were a woman. Well, it's not just actresses who have to deal with this. In my experience as a young woman in the film industry, it is fairly standard that at some point, some guy you are working with will come onto you. It can be subtle, a middle-aged unit photographer to whom you have zero attraction, suggesting a pretty girl like you ought to have a drink. It can be more overt, an older actor you've worked with for months, suggesting you stay in his hotel room that night. 
and it can be shameless. A white-haired 60-something male film critic planting a wet kiss on your lips as you leave a party, his hand cradling your buttock. Such behavior was impossible to avoid. The rules seemed to be, if you're a young woman in this industry, you're fair game. How did you personally deal with that? I shrug. You construct a stoic facade to fend off the unwanted attention. I mean, I didn't in any of those instances, those three instances, sleep with the man in question. I came up with some witty but firm response, hoping it was clear enough I was uninterested without having to be rude. Did it get tiring to deal with? Yeah, absolutely, of course it's irritating. Of course the naive you is thinking that maybe this older male film critic is inviting you to events because he's interested in your thoughts on genre and female directors, when really he just wants to sleep with you. Eventually, you stop being so naive. But the witty response, the ability to demonstrate a resourceful defense is key. Most importantly, you don't show weakness. Men are programmed to prey on weakness. Is that what you think? Well, not all men, of course, hashtag not all men, but in film, there's always a power imbalance. Powerful prey on the weak. The weak become disposable, expendable, then vanish. So if you want to survive, you don't show your weakness. Thank you. We have 10 minutes remaining to us, so I want to hand it back to you and see if you've got anything that you want to ask Jessica. If you want to just raise your hands so the mic can come to you. I mean, I've got a question, while you guys are thinking of questions, since nobody raised their hand right away, I've got a question for Jessica in terms of... <laughs> Jump in there. Um, yeah, I am. <laughs> um, how, did you start off running the novel knowing that you wanted to address Me Too and, the, you know, and stuff similar to the Weinstein allegations, or was it, did it start with the friendship, the female friendship, and then did that, the other issues work their way in? I, so, I feel like my kind of personal... Focus. I... <laughs> <laughs> is um, kind of two ideas smashing up against each other. So yeah. I yeah. had the idea of the kind of um, intense female friendship, mm -hmm. and I had the Me Too idea, and then at some point I thought, okay, well, what this is really about, for me, the thing that interests me about the Weinstein stuff is the way that patriarchy divides not only women yeah. and men from each other, but divides women, women from yeah. each other. So that was best explored through the lens of female friendship. Yeah. But you said you, you, you kind of started with a conversation with your agent, so it was always about this moment in Yeah. In yeah, I mean, it was just an offhand comment my agent made, and then I'm like, okay, Did can I... Think? Well, yeah, and I, and I kind of just was like, oh, God, I don't want to write about this. But then I'm like, oh, no, but I can write about film. So I think mm -hmm. for me, the book is really about the film industry and trying to capture that, which is... And so I think that's why, like, even though essentially we're, we're t talking about the same topic in a lot of ways, yeah. yours is more about female friendship and mine is more about the industry, but which, there's quite a lot of overlap. Which I think goes back to a, yeah. a conversation I was having with Claire earlier about mm. how I don't see this as, I know I made, maybe made both novels sound quite dark, but I think they're both quite fun novels mm. because yeah. like, I feel like you really unleashed your inner film lover. Right. And for me, a lot of this is like a pie into getting really drunk with your mates and having yeah. a lovely time. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And I think that finding that joy and lightness yeah. is both as kind of it, it allows you to explore some of the darker stuff but i think there's also you know i i don't know what to keep talking about moral imperatives but there's also a moral imperative to explore like the joy and the depth and the um ability to discern and see as well as be seen yeah. that these female characters have yeah 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 and i think for me your book is very much about 
being in your 20s and living in London in some ways. And, and that kind of made me revisit, oh, yeah, like all those yeah. nights, like drinking until 4 a.m. and then like swimming in the Hampstead, you know, bathing ponds afterwards. And just like that, that joy of like, you know, summer in your, in your 20s in London, even though your main character, Emily, is quite depressed in a lot of ways, right? And so like, right? So she, she's kind of almost, she's sort of going through the motions of it, but then also at, at the heart of it, and we find out towards the end, at the heart of it, there is this kind of sadness that she has. Um, so it is that kind of dark in the light. Um, and so for me, it was, yeah, the joy of movies and, and the excitement of working in film, but then the darkness that is embedded in that kind of world. And the glamour as well, the yeah. seductive glamour. Yeah, which is never as glamorous as it appears on screen, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, so you go down the red carpet, but at the same time, you know, you realize if you're not a famous person, you can't stay on the red carpet, and the security guard tells you to keep moving, right? So all that kind of stuff I wanted to try to capture, because I think unless you're in the industry, you look at, you watch the Oscars, you know, you, maybe you look at the tabloids, or you, you kind of see all the different snippets, and you think it's a really glamorous industry, but that's all manufactured. The glamour is part of... Of, of the industry's own PR in some ways. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna, can I ask a quick, quick question mm -hmm. for Winnie? Yeah. Like, would Sarah have stayed if it hadn't been for the champagne and the proximity to exciting things happening? Um, not under those conditions, right? I mean, with, with that kind of inequality that you're working with, yeah, I don't think she would have put up with that. I, you know, on one hand, I think it, there's a few things. There's like wanting to make movies and loving mm -hmm. cinema. There's, the fun of the champagne and all the parties and all that kind of stuff. Um, and, and I suppose tied to that celebrity, even though celebrity itself is manufactured. Um, and, and then there's like all the dark stuff that is tied to all of that, right? Like all the inequality and the, and the patriarchy, right? Um, and, and the economic precarity of it, right? So it's almost like those three elements of that same world. And like, really, she's just there for the, I mean, she really wants to be there for the filmmaking, but obviously the parties are quite fun. Um, so towards the end of the book, she, there's a comment where she's like, well, if only we could make movies in a different way where there wasn't the casting couch where you didn't have all the ridiculous parties. It was just people wanting to create art and form communities of making art, right? Which is in a sense what Hollywood is and could be, but it's also ramped up with you know, huge amounts of cocaine and huge amounts of like millions of dollars being spent on, you know, ridiculous movies. So, um, yeah, I think Sarah probably would have liked to stay, but I think under those conditions, that kind of inequality, she probably would have left anyway. Um, but I don't know, that's the novel. <laughs> Winnie, with just um, a couple of minutes left to go, I'd really like you to mention clear lines. Oh, and, right, and okay. I know that when you've used the term activism, both of you have been speaking about writing as a form of activism, but, but, but Clear Lines feels uh, as though it's worth you maybe rounding up this session by referring to, because that's the activism that all three of us are uh, united by. Yeah. Despite our enormous differences. <laughs> Look how they had to divide us on the stage. <laughs> Because <laughs> after this, we are going to go to the arm wrestling, right? We are. Yeah. Okay. yeah. You place your bets. Yeah. That costs extra if you want to stay for that. <laughs> um, no, so Clear Lines is a festival that I started seven years ago. Wow. Yeah, seven years ago. And that, for me, by that point, it was uh, for 2015. So it was seven years after my own rape. Um, and so I, by that point, had started to notice there's quite a lot of really good art that's being created about this issue, um, often from the often being created by actual survivors which and drawn from their own lived experience and that art was one way that people could really start to understand the lived experience of, of victimhood and survivorhood and 
the impact it has on the human life. Um, so, but there wasn't, at the time, this was again pre-Weinstein, me too, there, at the time there wasn't really a place for that art to be seen. So I decided to start a festival, um, really scrappy, like, you know, we crowdfunded that kind of thing, where for four days we would like see movies and like listen to poetry readings. And, you know, uh, there was a, a discussion of crime fiction and sexual violence. Um, and also, you know, listen to stand-up comedians who were, like talking about the issue um, and also making people laugh about the issue. And it was really meant to be a celebration of creativity um, in terms of addressing um, these experiences. Um, so that was cool. Uh, and then we did another festival and in 2017. Unfortunately, it was all done in London. And then eventually it became too much work to actually just keep on raising money. So we just did one-off events. Um, and then essentially, Claire um, last year launched a creative writing guide for uh, survivors of sexual violence and abuse. Um, and that's free that you can get on our website, you can download it, and there's creative writing exercises that people can um, can work through themselves. Um, and we do occasionally, when we have funding, um, run workshops for survivors of sexual abuse and, um, and violence. And so we do those online, but we can also do those in person. So Claire does those, and I occasionally do them as well. Um, yeah, and I think I just want to create a space where art around these issues can be seen and experienced and, where we could talk to the creators about it as well. So that was Thank you. your lines, yeah. <laughs> um, I have, because we look at this with consummate professionalism. It's one minute before eight o'clock, uh, and it's a wrap. I, I believe that's what they say. <laughs> it is a wrap. Thank you so much for keeping to time. Wowee, the most... Uh, precise artist I think I've ever worked with, so thank you very much. I mean, we could keep talking. I mean, it's so interesting to hear the silence in the room. We're all so enthralled in it, so I'm really sorry to, to cut you off, but thank you so much for speaking. Thank you so much, everyone, for coming. Thank you again for speaking with us today, and enjoy the rest of the festival. Thank you. Thank you.